growing up, um, as many of you know, I grew up with godly Christian parents, and I praise God for that. Uh, in light of things, I praise God that my testimony is relatively boring, because uh, that's outside of uh, that's not done outside of God's grace. So as we, uh, but growing up when I was little, there was this great show which I actually think was redone recently because I believe Caleb watches or had watched it called Thomas the Train. The original is obviously better than the new one, um, but I remember uh, oftentimes I had grandparents who lived up in a small town up north called Manitowage, which is like five hours east of Thunder Bay, uh, which is like nowhere no one has ever heard of. Um, Marathon is probably the next closest city, if or town, I should say, town, uh, which is still like, pardon there we go. One, one, one. I was born in Thunder Bay, so there. Um, but uh, but I, 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 we would go up there to visit. My grandfather was a pastor, so we would go up there, and obviously we would go to church. There was not a Sunday even growing up that I would ever miss a Sunday service. If we were on vacation, we were going to church. It might not have been our home church, but it was someone else's church. And growing up, uh, it, was not, it wasn't fun. It wasn't something that I really liked because, again, let me bring you back to Thomas the Train. Uh, because, f- to the best of my knowledge, Thomas the Train was on Sunday mornings. Uh, and I remember uh, one time up at my grandparents, and it was on, we, we didn't have cable. Uh, we barely had a TV growing up. We had a little black and white thing that you had to click to change the channel. And um, so I watched G.I. Joe's and whatnot on a black and white. Uh, but uh, the I remember watching it, and it just came on, like the introduction just comes on, and then we're all like, all right, time to go to church. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? It really bugged me. <laughs> yeah, it scarred me for life. And often I would ask my dad why, why we needed to go to church, you know, and his response was always, well, what else are you going to do? Uh, and, and the telling, and he was asking on purpose, because the telling answer to that was, I just wanted to watch Thomas the Train. Um, it was a telling thing for even a, for me as a young person, because I would pout, because I'd have to go to church, but I knew I was wrong at the same time. The worst feeling in the world, isn't it? Where you're kind of like, it's complete and utter selfishness and entitlement, which is just another further sign of my total depravity as a five-year-old. Well, but here's the question that still has, you know, there are still questions that were going on in my mind is, well, why do I need to go to church? What, the, what is the big deal with it? What was it all about? Why is it important, especially more important than me watching this awesome TV show? So here's a question for you. Why do we gather together as the church? Right? Why? Some of you uh, braved the ice outside to come to church. Why? Why would you come together? And, and, oh, and I should say to those who are unable to make it, I'm not, you know, dishing on you, okay? Let's stay safe. But what do we do also? What do we do when we come and gather together? What does this have to do with 
going to church, what does, going, what does having going to church have to do with making disciples or, or being a faithful disciple? Why is it important to gather together? Outside of your upbringing and your childhood and your mom or your dad forcing you to get up when you were a teenager and dragging you by the ear out the door to go to church and you just continue to carry that on, why do we come to church? It's biblical, yes. But why do we gather? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. This week, for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about three words, pulpit, table, square. And we're going to be, and I'm going to explain them all. They're all up there, the nice, wonderful pictures. The pulpit is the middle one with the triangle because it kind of looks like a pulpit. But we're going to be talking about pulpit today. And what that means for us today, the church gathered, the table, the circle, is the church being in community. The square is the church being in the community. So last week we talked about being a people of prayer, and really it's going to be a continuation of that. I'm going to be asking you that you would be a people of prayer as we pray to be people who gather together as the church, who are a church in community and a church in the community. And see how we can be better disciples ourselves who are also making disciples of Jesus Christ. So for the next three weeks, we will be looking at those three words to help us and guide us in how we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Pulpit, table, square. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And then keep your finger there because we'll also be in John chapter 4, verse, verse, verse 16. And the word of the Lord says this in 1 Corinthians 2. And I, when I came to you, this is the Apostle Peter, Paul, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or, or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Then back over in John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, it says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, we just come to you to continue to worship you. This isn't a pause in our worship. This is a continuation. So Lord, I pray that indeed you would be glorified and honored as we seek to worship you through the preaching of your word. And God, I want to preach so that you are glorified and there's no possible way I can do this without you. So I pray by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed with the necessary power and the appropriate affection. God, I pray that you would use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. 
So for this next three sermons, we'll be actually looking at more of a topical series. So uh, generally, we try to do what is called expository preaching. We take large chunks of the Bible and we preach through them in, in, in order. But for this next little while, we're just going to be talking about these three words, pulp, pulpit, table, square, and what that means. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, to we see this first point of exalting Christ through preaching. As we gather together as the church, we're going to be looking at two things that we do as we gather together. One of them is preaching. There always will be preaching from the pulpit. And when it comes to preaching, this is important because God's word is what convicts, converts, builds up, and sanctifies God's people. We see this over and over in the Bible, in Hebrews, 1 Peter, 1 Thessalonians, and even Jesus himself in John. Preaching that makes the main point of the text, the main point of the sermon, makes God's agenda rule the church, not the preacher's, not mine. So it means that when we come to a section of Scripture where you're kind of like, oh, I don't know what to do with that one, we actually have to deal with that part of the Bible and make it part and make the main point of that importance. I was reminded of the importance of this this week as I was incredibly disappointed with the ministry that I've used that completely and utterly disregards this amazing word called propitiation, which is in the Bible. Propitiation means that God has saved us from his wrath. So there's no concept within this ministry of God's wrath being poured out on us and how God has saved us from that. It cheapens the gospel, doesn't it? It cheapens the cross. You know, and, and if we ignore these chunks of Scripture, then that's what happens. See, I am seeking to see what God has to say and apply that to my own life and not take what I want and apply it to the Bible. I know Augustine talked about this. If we were to come and kind of cut up the Bible a little bit, what would we have left? If we were to apply what we thought God should be to his own word. The reality is there wouldn't be much left. Because for us, how could our God be wrathful? Well, he's a God of love. See, but what we are doing when we are preaching is this. When we're doing it in this way is we are exalting Christ. And that's what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Another translation might use with eloquence or, or superior wisdom. So here he is, Paul comes to this church and he's like, he's throwing out all sorts of cultural norms. He's not coming to them with, with some sort of lofty speech or rhetoric or, or the best way to present an idea. He's coming simply so that people may know Christ. See, we do understand that when it comes to preaching, there is an art to it, and we do grow in our abilities to preach God's word. Now, we go to schools, we take classes, we go to conferences so that we can grow in those things. But notice what Paul did not do. In a culture of the time, some of the Christians in Corinth may have been critical of Paul for not using the rhetoric techniques that other people around them were using. They, they thought that he didn't speak well enough. He didn't come 
with rhetorical competence. He didn't come with human wisdom. He didn't come with a superiority complex. He didn't come with what the culture said was wise. He didn't come with, he didn't come as a smooth talker. He came boldly with one thing. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. He ignores the Greek rhetoric and and focuses on the message of the cross so that the Corinthians would put their faith in Christ who was crucified rather than the ability of the human messenger. You see, I long deeply for that. I pray regularly for this, that God would do something amongst us here at Nolwood, but may it not be because of me, but because Jesus Christ and him crucified. Which is why I further pray that God may revive us so that no one can take the credit. May not 20 years from now someone be able to say, look how great that pastor was. I pray that I could preach Christ and be forgotten. And may we exalt him. Why? As he says later on, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul here identifies the substance of his preaching. What Paul describes in in 1 chapter 23 as a stumbling block to the Jews because the Messiah had been hung on a tree and what he calls his foolishness to the Greeks. Paul is the one who comes and he, he boldly proclaims simply that, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's throwing everything out the window. so that the people may just simply know that it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that saves them. Yet not I, but through Christ. Paul came with the very thing that the world around him thought was foolishness. He came with the gospel. The gospel is is simply this, that Christ has died for our sins and he rose again. What do I have to offer you outside of Jesus Christ? Nothing. That's what Paul is saying. What do I have to give you outside of exalting Christ and pointing with the biggest neon sign that I could come up with that you desperately need Jesus? Our city here in London is broken. And the answer isn't more money. Money's good and can be used to bring glory to God. Don't don't hear me say that. But they need Jesus. Because money just patches things without addressing the heart problem that they desperately need to be saved out of a kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, and that is only done through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the gospel, that Christ has died for our sins. Why did he have to die for our sins? Because we sinned against a holy God. We were deserving of his wrath being poured out upon us, but thanks be to God who saved us by his grace and his mercy. See, he continues on, Paul continues on, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You know, and if we look at these words by themselves, we might think that Paul is a bit of a coward. You know, uh, uneducated, maybe timid, unable to speak well. But actually we see in Acts chapter 17 that that was very much the opposite. He could do Greek rhetoric. He was a very well-educated man. So what is Paul talking about here? 
Some people thought Paul didn't speak well enough that he, had, uh, that, 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 that he wasn't also good-looking enough. Hashtag preachers and sneakers. Look that up on Instagram, okay? I kid you not, right? We're, we spent a whole night looking at that stuff. I can't believe these people wearing shirts that are more than my salary. It's unbelievable. So the Corinthians church came along and said, Paul, you don't speak well enough and you don't look good enough. You're not making it to the preachers and sneakers on Instagram. So here's the thing. Self-confidence, if it is rested on my own strength, reflects a desire to be independent from God. And Paul wants to be dependent on God. Paul had learned that God can use human weaknesses to show his awesome glory. And then he continues on, and my speech and my message were not implausible words or of wisdom. Paul knew that men and women will be convinced by the gospel only because, as he says in these next few words, it demonstration, it is a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul didn't come to these people relying upon his own strength, relying upon his own talents. Or training, he came using those things with a confidence in God rather than relying on his own skills. In our biblical uh, conversations curriculum that we're walking through, that is the point. I'm not going to teach you a whole bunch of great arguments in order to nail that atheist. My goal is so that you may love the Word of God more and know it more, and may that be your authority. And if people want to reject it, that's fine. But I'm going to give you Jesus. Because that's what you need. You don't need an argument. You don't need lofty speech, great wisdom. You need Jesus. But then he continues, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, what is the outcome? So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. See, if I come up to you with these amazing arguments and I win you over logically and intellectually, what happens if that argument is torn apart one day? What happens to your faith? Now, if I point you to Jesus Christ, and all those apologetical questions will do and do get answered. They're important to answer, right? Is the Bible truthful? Uh, did Jesus really die and did he really rise again? Uh, did, the, did God really create the world? All of those apologetical questions are important, but the source has to be the word of God, not my brain. And the outcome is so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in God. Good arguments aren't what save people. There was a time in the church where we would train everyone and our evangelism method was, let's see how good we can argue with people. Which for me is like prime. Let's argue? Done. There. I love to argue. But that's not what changes people's hearts. Saving faith is produced by the heart-changing power of the Holy Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed. This is why we preach Christ. This is why our focus will be on the preaching of the God's word because hearts don't change without it. However, Paul doesn't think that learning and talking well is a bad and worthless thing, right? Remember Acts 17. 
He was really good at speaking. But he excludes it from determining the content of the gospel and from accessing the credibility of the preacher. It's the gospel. So everything we do as a church, as we gather together as a people, should come out of this, should it not? See, if God's word is what convicts, if it's God's word that converts and builds up and sanctifies his people, should that not be what is center? Preaching that makes the main point of the text, the main point of the sermon, makes God's agenda rule the church, not the preacher's, not mine. This comes down even to how we give wisdom to people. So often you and I come up and say, yes, I trust what the Bible says, but then when someone asks for wisdom, the first thing we come up with is what? Not what the Bible says, but what we think is wise. So often you and I come up and say these things. We can allow God's word to teach, rebuke, correct, and train us in righteousness so we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work, as 2 Timothy says. But we offer wisdom that comes from Facebook, a Facebook post, rather than what God says. People need more than a corny cliche. They need Jesus. If the Bible is God's inspired word, then it is true. If it is true, we should follow it. We should give it as wisdom. You know, one of the worst pieces of advice that I can think of at this moment is this. Follow your heart. It's something that we give all the time. Oh, you need to do what's right for you. You need to follow your heart. What part of your heart? The same heart that, like, my five-year-old heart that was so selfish that I wanted to stay home to watch TV? What part of your heart should you follow? It's the worst piece of advice, really, right? What happens when you, you, like, what happens if a racist or a bigot comes up to you and says, oh, I'm just following my heart? That's ridiculous, folks. Follow your heart? We need to bring people to who Jesus is. It comes out of, in our TV shows, Disney's full of it. I love Disney. I got Disney Plus. I'm going to go home. I'm going to watch some more Disney. All right? Great. Dr. Pohl, good stuff. Right? But should that guide the wisdom by which we give people if it's outside of the word of God? Let us stop giving awful advice. Let us rely upon what God says. Follow your hearts. How about to all those people out there who are being true to themselves while they're total jerks? But when someone comes to me and asks for wisdom on marriage or finances or raising your kids or time management, I completely ignore what God has said. We need far more than cliches, as I have said. We need wisdom that comes from the living God, and that's what Paul does. His only aim is to preach to these people that Jesus Christ and him crucified, and that's it. If it's God's word that convicts and converts and builds up and sanctifies his people, let us not come to people with lofty speech or wisdom. Let us come with the word of God. Let us decide to know nothing amongst us 
except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So here's a simple challenge that I was really challenged on before. People always think, oh, where's your Bible? I'm like, I got my Bible. It's always right to me, right? It's always, I got every translation possible with Greek, Hebrew, the whole nine yards, commentaries, everything. But I was kind of challenged by someone on that. You know, he said, I, I walked into Tim Hortons. He's a pastor friend. It was actually, I'm going to say his name is Corey McKenna. And I go in there and I talk to him. I see him. I make fun of him because I can and uh, I'm like, oh, you got your Bible there, good. So, like, what are you trying to do? Try and evangelize me or something? I was being facetious and sarcastic, as I'm often. And he's like, no, man. He used the word man, because he used to be a headbanger. <laughs> he said, this is my challenge to myself. See, when I bring the word of God and I place it on the table, it means it's a reminder to me and a reminder to the person I'm meeting with that that is the authority by which this conversation will happen. I thought, that's a great point. So I've been challenging myself at it. I've been doing a pretty bad job at it, though. (laughs) Every time I get into the car and I go into the Tim Hortons, I'm like, oh, shoot, my Bible. (laughs) Yeah, I got to just keep one spare in the car. Let me challenge you with this. Every time you go meet for someone with coffee, every time you, you go have a conversation with someone, bring your Bible. You may not open it, but may it be a sign to you and to everybody else that is watching you that that is what this conversation will be centered on. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Last week, I asked you to join with me in being a people of prayer. So pray with me that the word of God would be preached, nothing more. That Noah would be known as a church that preaches the word in a world that is full of all sorts of wisdom. Pray that the preaching of God's word would be biblically careful and Holy Spirit impued. Pray. And as we gather together, as we gather together as a church to exalt Christ through the preaching, the natural outcome of this is actually singing. You know that? So we exalt Christ through singing. And we go to John chapter 4 for this, and Jesus himself comes. And he calls this, in the context of what is happening here, this is a woman at the well, and they're having this great dialogue. Uh, Jesus calls her on a few things, and she tries to stump Jesus uh, with a geological, theological question. Well, where can we worship? And Jesus replies, essentially saying that there will be a time where worship is not based upon a geological location anymore. It will happen in spirit and in truth. As he says in verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such a people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You see the commandment there? See, true worshipers aren't identified by where they are geologically, but they're worshipped on how they worship. They worship true and true worship. They will f- worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But what in the world does it mean to worship in spirit? In spirit must be God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what does it mean to worship in truth? I think this 
Matt and I, Pastor Matt and I talk about this all the t- regularly because it's his circle, his worship ministry. How often worship ministry is void of seeking the truth part. But God comes and Jesus comes along and says, you can't worship outside, you can't worship the God in spirit if you don't also worship him in truth. They're tied together. In truth, in the personal knowledge of and the conformity to God's word made flesh, the one who is God's truth, we must worship in Jesus. See, true worship is empowered by the spirit of truth and is done with truth. You can't worship God outside of truth. It can happen only in and through Jesus who is the truth and the true temple and it must be done with all of us. At the same time, worship must be in truth. That is properly informed. Unless we have knowledge of the God we worship, there is no truth in what we worship. That's a huge statement that Jesus is coming out with. So he says, in spirits. True worship must be in spirits. That is engaging the whole heart. Unless there is a real passion for God, there is no worship in spirit either. This is what Moses talks about in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Who shall love the Lord? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with everything you got. Worship. Our worship of God is directed by our love for Him. And as we love, so we worship. Because the idea of might in the Hebrew, it it talks about a totality. Jesus expanded on this expression to the mind and to the strength. To worship God in spirit and truth involves loving him with everything we've got. With our whole soul, with our heart, with our mind and our strength. So worship must be in truth. It must be properly informed. Unless we have knowledge of the God we worship, we, there is no worship in truth. Both are necessary for God-honoring worship. Spirit without truth leads to this shallow, overly emotional experience that could be compared to that spiritual high. I grew up going to church. I don't know how many conferences I went to. The spiritual high is a real thing. The conferences, the week-long getaways. You're coming back on that bus going, yeah, Jesus is great. By Monday morning when you go to school, you're like, oh, why was I so excited? It's a reality. And as soon as the emotion is over, when the fervor cools, the worship ends, truth without spirit can result in a dry, though, We've got to have both. It can, uh, truth without spirit can result in a dry, passionless encounter that can easily lead to a form of joyless legalism. It's like you, you, go, you go to those churches where they, uh, the classic Baptist thing, right? You don't. You stand at attention the whole time. And, and shame on you if you start topping that foot. 
right? Some of us grew up in churches like that. We got to have both. And one leads to an extreme. What Jesus is pointing to us is that both aspects of worship are needed and the result is in a, in a joyous appreciation of God which is informed by the Bible. The more we know about God, the more we appreciate Him. Is that not true? The more we appreciate, the deeper our worship. The deeper our worship, the more God is glorified. See, I think, Jonathan Edwards says this, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections, the emotions of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. What he is saying is that the only truth that can properly influence the emotion in a way that brings honor to God is through the word of God. The truth of God being the infinite value is worthy of infinite passion. See, I come to God and I'm more and more amazed of who he is. Right? Like this morning I was reading in the Psalms, I was just amazed by this. You know, in, in Psalm 107, verse 43, it ends with this. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. What are the things? The list of things that he just talked about, how great our God is. And let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The more I know about who God is, the more it affects my worship. And that may look differently for other people. Someone who raises their hands is no more holier than the person who doesn't. Because as far as I can get, it's like this, okay? I, I do the baby hold. All right? I don't, nothing like this. That's just crazy talk. Right? But it doesn't mean I'm less holy. But more, I shouldn't be judging the other people either that are doing that or doing this. The Father is seeking such a people for himself. Not a people on a sort of high, not a people ruled by legalism, not a people in specific location, but a people whose worship comes out of their appreciation for God as he has shown himself in his word. Our God is great. It's endless. True worship is empowered by the spirit of truth and is in accordance with the truth it can occur only in and through Jesus, who is the truth and the true temple. Notice that, guys, I, I love the gospel. And the older I get, I'm no longer that five-year-old kid who, who gets so disappointed about not going to church. I love coming to church. I, I should, because I'm the pastor, but I love coming to church. When I go on vacation, I go to church. Because I love gathering with the people of God so that I can be reminded of the gospel. I need it daily, weekly, to be reminded of who God is. And as I'm reminded about who God is and what he has done for me through his word, not based on my feelings, but through his word, that changes how I worship. When we pick songs during the week, the first question we ask is, is it true? Does it represent how God has revealed himself in his word? 
We, see, we sing songs and we seek to sing songs that are true to God's word because that directly affects us. Now, a few weeks ago, I brought my family to go see, and this is an illustration to point out how important music is, how important songs are. And it backfired on me, though, on Wednesday. So uh, on Wednesday, I, I used this illustration for a prayer meeting, and all the, everyone in there is like, we don't focus on the songs. We, love the, we always think about what you preached on, and it fell apart. Uh, but I'm still going to use it because it's true to me. You know, a few weeks ago, we brought our family to see the new Frozen movie. Great movie, by the way. Disney. But don't let that inform your philosophy or your theology. And as I left this place, all I could think about was the theme song. It was stuck in my head for like two days. I'm just singing it in my head the whole time. See, music is important. And you may not remember every single word that I said in my sermon, but you probably will remember a song. And you will leave this place singing it in your head. Do you see why it's so important that our worship is influenced by truth? So today, we introduce this wonderful song. This song makes me almost cry. Almost. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. I love this song. It's by a bunch of young adults, may I add, in a place called Australia. A bunch of kids younger than I am, writing music this deep. On a side note, don't ever think that there's a generation lost, folks. God is doing great things. Did you read those words as you sung them? To this I hold. My hope is is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And this is the one that sticks out to me. That night is dark. There are dark nights, aren't there? But I am not forsaken. For by my side the Savior he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fates I dread. I know I am forgiven. The future, sure, the price, it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he has raised to overthrow the grave. So as we gather together as the church, we seek to exalt Christ through preaching because it is the only thing that convicts, it, it, it sanctifies and builds up the body. That out of that, we seek to sing songs that magnify him and bring glory to his name. So will you pray with me that our songs, above all, will teach our members to biblically confess, to lament and praise. This all comes through exalting Christ to the preaching of his word. Notice how I didn't say anything about music style. Doesn't matter. 
God is seeking a people who will worship him in spirit and in truth, not in a music style. But it should affect us eventually, should it not? We'll never get to the point where we'll have dancing because we're Baptists. But, <laughs> but it should come out, should it not? As you look around, I love how this is designed. This room is designed because you can look and see people, right? Should it not come out in, our, in how we're voicing ourselves and we're praising our God? It could be through clapping. It could be quietly praying. It could be in any form of different expressions. But may our worship be in spirit and in truth. May we grow in a deeper understanding of who God is. Pray with me that our songs would teach each other that, to biblically confess, lament, and praise. So what? Noah is a church that is gathered. We gather together as a whole community to exalt Christ through preaching and singing. That's why we come together. That's why you sacrifice sleeping in on a Sunday morning. That's why uh, you went to bed earlier the night before. You should. I see some heads shaking. So that you can come to church to praise and exalt our God as we open up his word together and as we sing these songs. The goal of every gathering is to be reminded through God's word of who he is and be able to leave this place in whatever we feel with joy, with happiness, with struggle, with loss, with contentment, with depression, and still be able to stay to one another. Look, Matt, is not our God great? That's the goal. Not to walk away and say, man, pastor preached a great sermon today. Sometimes those are far and few. Man, those songs were great today. Everything we do as we gather together is to leave this place and say, is not our God great? So how does, how does gathering of the church help us to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ? Here are five practical things which you might not be able to read. First one is this. By, gatherings, by gathering, we remind each other of who we are and whose we are. The second one is this. By gathering, we remind ourselves that temporal trials we will face will have a joyful ending. We pray for healing as Christians, knowing that that prayer will be answered. Maybe not in this life, but it will be healed. We will get a new body. Mine will be a six-pack. <laughs> we will get a new body. We will be resurrected with our Lord. That's part of our hope. Number three, by gathering, it allows us to encourage growth and fight stagnation. By gathering, we are spending time with family. And then by gathering, we come together to remind us of our living hope. Folks, I understand that there are people who struggle so deeply with finding hope. I am one of those people which is why I have to remind myself of the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. 
I have to. Because without that reminder, it's hopeless. It's through this way that we can go out and proclaim the hope we have through Jesus Christ. So Noah is a church that is gathered. We gather together as a whole community to exalt Christ through preaching and singing. Through that, we break off into different things like baptism and communion and tithing. Yes, tithing is an act of worship. I had a wonderful conversation before church about that. As a kid, this is probably the answer that I should have heard. But would I have cared? Probably not. Because my heart was not redeemed yet. But as a man who has been saved by God's grace, this is indeed why I come to church. To exalt Christ through the preaching and the singing. God's word is what convicts, it converts, it builds up, it sanctifies his people. So let's be faithful disciples who are making disciples, not with lofty speech, but with the good news of Jesus Christ. And let our songs be songs that exalt Christ because they are true to how he has revealed himself in his word. And that is far better than whatever my feelings come up with. We gather as a whole community to exalt Christ through preaching and singing. We do this through preaching the main point of the Bible, to instruct, to encourage, rebuke, and to exalt Christ through singing songs that are both singable and theologically deep. We seek excellence, not perfection, but we seek excellence as we worship through prayer, singing, preaching, tithing, baptism, and communion to the God who deserves our best. Not because we want to get more attractive, but because our God deserves the best. All other areas center on this as a community moves outward. If the word of God is not centered to the church, everything else crumbles. Any church that doesn't hold to the gospel anymore, I can always trace it back to what happens from here. What the songs they sing, how they interact with the world around them always comes from here because that's where the authority is, the pulpit, where the preaching of the word comes. Not the man, but through the word of God. So as we gather together as a whole community to exalt Christ through preaching and singing, pray that we do that. Pray for everyone who preaches here that we would be faithful to the texts. Pray for those who pick songs, that we would sing songs that are based on truth and may that affect us as we worship in spirit and truth. Just pray. Pray that God would revive our hearts, your hearts, my hearts. That God would revive our church. May we be a people who are centered on the good news of Jesus Christ. Because it's good news. And that's what people need. Father God, we just thank you for this chance we've had to just worship you. I pray that we would continue to glorify you as we worship you through and exalt you through preaching and through singing. As we continue to sing, Lord, I pray that we would magnify your name, that you would be glorified and honored. And amen.